one of the reasons why you, you said you have one trust with multiple children all included in it rather than having the separate trust for each one because it arguably makes it less likely that all of your beneficiaries are going to collectively require repayment the day they turn 18. Typically, that's not what the parents want. They generally don't want their kids to get the capital the day they turn 18. They may not want them to get the capital at all, but they have to. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to the second part of episode 387 of Tax Talks, episode 387B. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. Last week, Patrick Elwood of Clover Law in Brisbane covered seven questions with you about the accepted income and child maintenance trusts. Today, let's look at the remaining eight questions. Let's look at how 107 AG and AE work hand in hand, whether you need to worry about accepted income for an accepted person. And then section 5150 ITAI 97, which is an important section for all child support payments that are paid directly and not through a CMT. Question 12 is a big one where Patrick Elwood will discuss with you what happens when all goes wrong. After that, we will cover UPEs and CMTs and how Section 100A comes in. And then last but not least, Patrick Elwood will talk with you about when a CMT rests. When can the children demand payout of the CMT capital? And how can you postpone that? This is the plan for today. So let's jump right in and start with question eight. 102AG and AE of the Income Tax Assessment Act 1936 work hand in hand. Do you mind if I get very nerdy right now and look at the actual law? And what I would like to do is look at section 102AG, uh, paragraph 2C8, but you know, 102AG and then 102AE. And I understand both basically cover what is accepted income. AG does it for the trust. And then AE does it for the individual taxpayer, which in this case would be the child. So 102AG and AE, they basically work together, don't they? If something is accepted income under AG, then automatically it's also accepted under AE and vice versa, correct? Yeah, that, that's right. They're, they're complementary provisions. So AG is about the trust, AE is about the beneficiary, and AG is really the I guess the operative one in this context, AG is setting out the conditions that need to be met in order for that trust to be accepted trust income. And then as long as you meet the requirements in AG, as long as the trust meets the requirements in AG, then when the income flows through to the hands of the beneficiary of that AE, they get the benefit of those, those same concessions. Number nine, you don't need to worry about accepted income if there is an accepted person. And this whole discussion about whether trust income is accepted income under AG and AE, that whole discussion is only relevant if the person is not an accepted person. So if you have a child that is in full-time employment or has a disability or is a double minor orphan, and if any of those apply and hence the person is an accepted person anyway, then you don't need to worry about whether you have accepted income or not because the person is accepted anyway, correct? And so that's exactly right. It's really, there's multiple ways to get the income to be treated as accepted trust income under AG and often the other pathways under AG like special disability trusts or testamentary trusts, some of these other trust structures 
it's much easier to satisfy those requirements in a very clear cut way than it is with a child maintenance trust. So if you can qualify under one of the other limbs in AG, that will often be the preference compared to using a, a CMT. And if you qualify under one of those other limbs, you don't need to rely on the CMT in the first place. So that's the issue that goes away. But you know, those other limbs, you, know, you, you need to either have a disabled child or, or there needs to be someone who passed away in the family like they are. They only apply in limited circumstances. That's why the concessions are there in the first place. <laughs> they don't give them to, to everybody because they're way too generous. Yes. You raised a very good point. A child maintenance trust is not the only trust that creates accepted income. For example, you can also have a disability trust or a testamentary trust. All those trusts and probably quite a few others as well create accepted income as well. So CMTs are just one form of that. But in addition to these trusts, creating accepted income. In addition to that, you also have accepted persons. And then for an accepted person, any income, you can have an accepted person and just a normal trust distribution from a normal discretionary trust, for example, and it would still be accepted income because it goes to an accepted person, correct? Yeah, yeah, spot on. So there's sort of two different ways to skip the cat. You either qualify because you have a special purpose trust, which meets one of those other requirements, like being a special disability trust or a, or a testamentary trust, or, or you get there because your beneficiary qualifies as an accepted person for one of those reasons you mentioned. Two different ways to reach the same outcome, which is less tax being paid. Yes. And so that means for a child maintenance trust, for example, if the child for some reason qualifies as an accepted person because, for example, it is in full-time employment or has a disability, if any of this applies, then you don't need to worry about whether the trust has accepted income or not because the accepted person is accepted anyway. No. And then the debate you have from a family law perspective is, let's say one spouse wants to distribute to that disabled child from a family trust, well, they've got the ability to do it from a tax perspective, but will the other spouse accept that payment as being in satisfaction of their child support obligations? But possibly not. The other spouse might be saying, well, I want child support as well. Number 10. Normal child support without a CMT is exempt under Section 5150, Subsection 1 and Subsection 2, ITAA 97. Just quickly coming to section 5150, and I think it's ITAA 97, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes. And that section is about normal child support payments. When child support payments come out of normal after-tax income, then they are tax-exempt under section 5150. But of course, section 5150 doesn't apply to distributions from a CMT because, of course, distributions from a child maintenance trust don't come out of post-tax income, hence you don't get this exemption in Section 5150, correct? Yeah, 5150 is effectively a, a no double taxation provision. So it's acknowledging that if, if the first spouse already paid tax on the income when they derived it, then there should be a second round of tax payable on that same amount when it gets paid from them to the, the other spouse. So yeah, it's effectively recognising that one lot of tax has already been paid and therefore the, the second payment's not taxable. Number 11. What about section 5150 subsection 3 ITAA 97? Do you mind if I just very quickly look at paragraph 3 of section 5150 of this exemption clause? And there it talks about maintenance payments that were either A, financed through the um, divestment of income producing assets or B, were diverted ordinary or statutory income upon which the um, payer would have 
pay tax anyway. And of course, this sounds very confusing now. But B makes perfect sense because it basically says if trust distributions, for example, go to a child, normal trust distributions go to a child, and if the parents agree that these trust distributions are to meet child support obligations, then of course, these payments are not tax-free because otherwise nobody would be paying tax on it because trust distributions are not taxed yet until they hit an individual tax return. Hence, they can't be tax-free in the child's tax return. So that exclusion I understand. If it's normal income that flows through that nobody has paid tax on yet, then of course it can't be tax exempt. What I don't understand is A, where it says divested any income producing assets. Why would a child support payment not be tax exempt just because the father, for example, had to sell a share portfolio to make these payments? Why this subparagraph A you know, saying it's not tax exempt if it comes in correlation with the divestment of income producing assets. Do you know? That is not a provision I've ever seen actually come into play in practice. I believe what it's really targeted at is a situation, I guess, making it clear that not so much if the first spouse sells an asset in order to make the payment to the other spouse, it's more so if they actually distribute an asset to the other spouse. So they go and transfer some shares in a company or, or perhaps an asset on revenue account. It's saying, well, that transaction of transferring the asset to your other spouse, if if that was if you were going to have a taxable gain arising from the distribution of that asset, then you still have to pay that sort of that initial tax. You, you don't get a free pass simply because you're transferring it to your spouse instead of selling it on the open market. That I imagine is what it's about. But yeah, as I said, it's not something that really comes up in practice for us very often. Yeah, that makes sense. So if you have a share portfolio that has unrealized capital gains in there, for example, for half a million, just by transferring this share portfolio into the child maintenance trust, it doesn't mean you get away from paying tax on this capital gain. You would still then have a taxing event and you would have capital gains tax on that share portfolio. Yeah, exactly. That is probably another deterrent for a child maintenance trust, correct? Any assets you move into the CMT would attract capital gains tax. Yeah, it's a real, really big limitation. So it's yeah, there's a couple of things that commonly come up where people say, well, these sound like a great idea. And then when they get to the detail, they say, okay, well, it's not actually right for our circumstances. I mentioned at the start, one of them is the fact that the capital vests in the kids ultimately. The other big one is that lack of an exemption on the initial asset contribution. So the client needs to be in a position where they have some non-taxable property, so cash, for instance, or some shares which don't have an accrued embedded capital gain, something they can make as that initial capital contribution in order for it to be viable. The last thing they want to be doing is setting it up and then incurring a big upfront CGT cost to move some assets in just for a, a longer-term tax saving. Okay, good. So that means we now have three common reasons against the CMT. The first one is that it requires cooperation between the parents, and that's often not present. The second one is that the capital must go to the children at the end. And then the third one is that you have CGT upon transfer of the assets. Yeah, that's right. Now, before we talk about question 12, what happens if all goes wrong? Here's a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Oh, it's coming. That time of year where stress levels go up by 15 to 20%. Yep, tax time. 
And when stress is up, mistakes happen. But I'm not here to talk about my screw-ups. Because this year, I've gone digital with DocuSign. Now there's no snail mail paperwork, invoices are getting done faster. So when it comes to tax time, I can just be an accountant and not some paper chaser. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. Number 12. What if all else goes wrong? What if it goes wrong? What if the ATO attacks the CMT and then the ATO assesses the income as not accepted and hence there is significant tax to be paid? Who is liable for that significant tax? Is that then assessed to the trustee or is that assessed to the children? Yeah, it's the, the trustee and the trust that ends up paying that that tax burden. And that, that can be the reason why they go and get a private ruling, even if they think it's not particularly contentious. Just to safeguard the trustee's position that they don't end up with this unexpected tax liability. One of the questions there was, well, did the trust actually did the income actually get distributed in the first place? What one of the reasons it might go wrong is because you've got an invalid distribution. So not so much that it wasn't accepted trust income. It might be that the requirements under the deed to distribute the income weren't met. You know, they did the distribution after 30 June and they missed the timing to make it happen. In which case you can have the trustee being assessed on it as undistributed income. But otherwise, if we assume that the distribution itself was valid and the, the child was entitled to the income of the trust in that particular year, but they didn't get the benefit of those accepted trust income rules for whatever reason, um, that's when it becomes an entitlement of the, the individual beneficiary that gets disclosed in their tax return and, and they're up for the penalty tax rates. So they're paying the essentially the top marginal tax rate on that distribution instead of getting the adult tax-free thresholds. And your worst case scenario is, is all of the income being taxed at the top marginal tax rate. So uh, assuming that if the income had been derived by someone else in the family group or you know, by another trust distributed to a corporate beneficiary, it's going to be unusual that that income would have been taxed at that, at that 47%. So it's almost always going to be a much worse outcome if it's being taxed to the children uh, without the accepted trust income provisions applying. Sorry, I had to cut this together a bit. Let me just quickly go back to who pays what. For trust distributions to minors, the trustee declares the income and pays the tax on behalf of the minors. And this doesn't change whether the income is accepted or not. So the process doesn't change. If the trust qualifies as a closely held trust and TFN withholding rules don't apply, then it depends on what the deed says. Usually it says that the trust can withhold the tax so the trustee will just pay out the net amount to the children, as we discussed last week in question number three. And if the trust deed doesn't say that and the TFN withholding rates still don't apply, then the trustee can pay out the full amount and then get reimbursed by the trust assets. Although I see a circular reference there, let's leave that aside, but so... We covered last week that the trustee always pays. The question is just whether there is withholding or not, but in the end, the trustee always pays. But what if the trustee, so the father usually, what if the trustee thought the trust would qualify as a CMT? He didn't get a private ruling or an ABA and suddenly the ATO has done a review and it is all falling apart and the ATO is assessing the income at Division 6 AO penalty rates. But the trustee has already paid out the income and just withheld tax at the lower adult tax rate. What then? I didn't check this with Patrick Elwood, but I have a very strong gut feeling the trustee just pays the additional top-up tax and then gets reimbursed 
through fund assets. So this is how it would work if it all goes wrong. But the lesson is basically that nothing changes. The process as such doesn't change, just the amount changes. And yeah, possibly there is a top up that is paid through fund assets. So now to the next question. Number 13. Is a CMT a discretionary trust? In the end, a child maintenance trust is just a normal trust, correct? It's just a normal unit trust, correct? Or is it a discretionary trust with fixed, yeah, fixed it, entitlements? It raises an interesting question. It, it can be either, depending on whether you have one or more children as beneficiaries of that trust. And there's a structuring question there as well that often the parents need to work through if they have two or three children. Yes, let's assume we have two, two or three children. So let's say we've got three children there. Well, one of the questions I need to think about is do, do we have a separate child maintenance trust for each of the three children and we capitalise each of them separately? Or, or do we have one child maintenance trust for all three of them combined? And either of them can work, but that impacts on things like the ability to distribute capital. Well, does the, uh, the ability to distribute income, does that need to be proportionate or equal between the three every single year? Or are we going to give the trustee some discretion to distribute different percentages of income to each of the children year on year? So mm. you come there's some quite sort of unique considerations to address there as to what's going to be best mm. for the family scenario. What do most people do with two or three children? Do most people go for a trust per child or do most people just go for one trust? Because bear in mind, Every trust costs a lot of money. So the more trusts you have, the more you pay in lawyer fees and accounting fees. Yeah, that's it. If you've got three trusts, you pay three sets of accounting fees, you're doing three tax returns, you're doing three times the administration every single year. So it tends to be one trust, one trust for all three of them combined. And then that can potentially be designed in a way where it's effectively a discretionary distribution to the children each year between those children and therefore it's not a unit trust it's not a fixed trust it is a discretionary trust it's just that you have a very narrow range of eligible beneficiaries good so a child maintenance trust is usually a discretionary trust if you have more than one child yeah that's right it would have some fixed entitlements correct so would it become a hybrid trust because there are some fixed entitlements for example the capital has to go to the children Hence, it's not to the discretion of the trustee who they pay the capital to. So I, I can imagine it's kind of a hybrid trust. It is discretionary by nature, but then the trustee has fixed entitlements. Hence, it becomes hybrid, correct? Yeah, it sort of sits in between the two, doesn't it? It's, uh, <laughs> you probably add that to the list of reasons why they don't get used as often as they could. It's just that they defy description in some ways. The um, That complexity around what are they and how do these distributions work? Is, um yeah, requires some explaining and some understanding to be used. Okay, so that's another reason for us on our list. So number four is complexity. So this caused quite a bit of confusion and still does, because in our show notes for episode 309, sorry, it's actually not 309, but 314. Both 309 and 314 are about child maintenance trust, but it is 314 where we say that it is a fixed trust. Yeah, but let's go back. Not that important, sorry. Because in our show notes for episode 309, we say that the CMT is a fixed trust since the trustee usually has no discretion on how to distribute the income or capital. But then lots of people on the internet say that a CMT is a discretionary trust. And then Patrick seems to say it can be one or the other depending on how many children there are. So I emailed Patrick and I asked. 
And so this is what I wrote. So a CMT for one child is a fixed trust. Since no discretion, all income and all capital needs to be paid to that one child eventually. And if the CMT is for two children or more, it is a discretionary trust. Since while all income and capital must be paid to the children, there's a discretion on who exactly gets what. Is that what you are saying? So that's what I wrote to Patrick. And Patrick kindly wrote back with the following. He writes, in respect of the fixed discretionary trust element, if there is a single beneficiary, then yes, it is a fixed trust. If there are two or more beneficiaries, then they would have a fixed entitlement to capital, but the income entitlement can either be drafted to be fixed or discretionary. If it is discretionary, then we effectively have a hybrid trust where the capital is preserved for the children in fixed proportion, but the trustee can vary the distributions of income between the children each year. I would say it is common just to have it as a fixed trust, though. So that means a CMT is either a fixed trust or a hybrid trust. So not a discretionary trust, how many people are saying on the internet. One result of this is that as a fixed or hybrid trust, the CMT would not be a closely held trust since not a unit trust or discretionary trust. And hence, the TFN withholding rules would apply. But we had already established that the trustee is responsible for paying the tax anyway and that that usually happens via withholding. So let's leave that question at rest. Let's just assume the trustee will say that the trustee is doing the withholding and so then all this is an academic discussion. So now to the next question. Number 14. Are unpaid present entitlements within the CMT an issue? In paragraph 7 of the tax ruling, it talks about unpaid present entitlement. And that gave me the impression, the way it is worded, etc., it gave me the impression that unpaid present entitlements are actually not an issue. You know, they're not an issue like in a trust that has UPEs to a company and then Division 7A. I got the impression that UPEs are actually not an issue in child maintenance trusts. Do you agree? Yes and no. I sound like a lawyer for a second to give you the dependence. But you are one. <laughs> it, um, so you definitely don't have any Division 7A issues because the trust isn't distributing to a company. It's only ever distributing to individuals. Sort of in the, in the ordinary course, the trust is allowed to create unpaid present entitlements. But we do have this tax ruling that came down last year about Section 100A reimbursement agreements. And the tax office, I guess, attacking UPE arrangements and, and querying whether situations where trust is being distributed to individuals but never actually paid to them and, and potentially at some point in the future being forgiven or assigned, that can create a whole separate set of tax consequences that need to be considered if you're going to have UPEs. Having said that, I guess what I see in a practical sense with the child maintenance trust is generally they're being created because there is actually a cash flow need. And so when the distribution is getting declared, the cash is also being paid at the same time in satisfaction of those child support obligations. So the money is coming out of the trust being used to pay the school fees or, or whatever the expenses are. And so in that context, while you're allowed to have UPEs, they're relatively rare for job and trusts specifically because the cash follows the distribution most of the time. Okay, that's a very good point. When you have a UPE in a, a child maintenance trust, you possibly have a Section 100A issue. And also in practice, you have very rarely seen UPEs because the children need the cash. That's right, yeah. It's not like they are swimming in, in a lot of money and can just let them money sit there. And I can also imagine that the mother is probably very keen to 
get any present entitlements paid out because cash you have in your hand is is real cash and not and a lot more worse than a possible entitlement that hasn't been paid, correct? Yeah, and, and the unpaid entitlement, it's a legal entitlement to demand that money at a later date. So if you're doing this for a minor, like the day that minor turns 18, they can potentially turn up and demand cash payment for the UPE that had built up over time. And that's just at a family or a commercial level, that's not necessarily a great outcome to have your 18-year-old suddenly turn up and say, well, I could see that I've got a $150,000 UBE here. Uh, when can I expect the money to hit my bank account? So that's why, one of the reasons why usually the cash follows the distributions of these ones and we're avoiding a scenario where there's going to be an obligation to make a big cash payment to a, what might be a relatively young adult in the future. Number 15, when does the CMT vest? When can the children demand dissolution of the trust and how to postpone that date? I understand that once all beneficiaries have hit 18, they can request the vesting of the trust. And there's a court case, which name I have forgotten. But basically, once all the children are 18, it's very difficult to still hold the trust in place if all children agree to have the trust dissolved. Yeah, but, and, th- and that yeah. could be one of the reasons why you, you said you have one trust with multiple children all included in it, rather than having the separate trust for each one, because it arguably makes it less likely that all of your beneficiaries are going to collectively require repayment the day they turn 18. Typically, that's not what the parents want. They generally don't want their kids to get the capital the day they turn 18. They may not want them to get the capital at all, but they have to. But if they are going to get it, it, the parents might have a preference that it's more when they're 25 or 30 or or even older. I'd say that's that overlying issue is you have case law, which says we've only got three beneficiaries of a trust and the three beneficiaries demand that the trust be vested, the trustee's under an obligation to follow through with that. But obviously, the more beneficiaries you have, the less likely it is that they're going to collectively make that demand. Yes. So let's say you have three children, they're 8, 11 and 14, so three years apart. If you make it a joint trust for all three together, then the trust can't get vested until the youngest is 18. So that means in 10 years. But If you make a trust for each child separately, then the first child that is 14 at the moment basically can request a payout of the trust in four years when they turn 18. So by putting all children together, at least you postpone the vesting by the age difference between the youngest and the oldest child, correct? Yeah, you postpone the vesting and you also put yourself in a situation where you've only got to persuade one of the three kids not to demand the vesting at that it gets delayed for all three of them. Welcome back. One topic we didn't cover is the family tax benefit, A and B. Patrick didn't want to comment on it since not his area of expertise. The question is, since the child maintenance trust distributions go to the children and not to the mother, is the mother's family tax benefit affected? As you remember, both the family tax benefit A and B are income tested and child support is included in that income. So once child support reaches a certain level, the parent, usually the mother, the parent loses first family tax benefit A and then B. But possibly not when that child support is coming through a child maintenance trust because then the payments are going directly to the children so have nothing to do with the mother. 
So that would be another benefit of having a CMT, but the additional costs and accountant and lawyer fees, of course, to set it up and run a CMT usually outweigh the payments you get under the family tax benefit. So you wouldn't set up a CMT just to keep your family tax benefits. But I will get back to you on this question and family tax benefits in general later this year. In the next episode, episode 388, let's focus on TR 98-4. In tax ruling 98-4, the ATO discusses five situations involving child maintenance trusts that will stop the CMT income from being accepted income. So today and last week, we focused on section 102 AG. And over the next two episodes, let's focus on TR 98-4 that is basically based on section 102 AG. So let's go through those five situations next week. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for the support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.